This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. So welcome to the second On the Fence Physio podcast. This is our May episode. We are on the fence about, is physical therapy in the COVID-19 pandemic essential? Discussing this issue and you're summarizing the Twitter conversation from this past month is your host, myself, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist, um, and my co-host, Matt. Why don't you give yourself a little shout out? Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today to the discussion. Uh, Hopefully we don't get too far into the weeds as we talk about something that both Andy and I are pretty passionate about. So Andy, why don't you go ahead and tell um, me and the listeners a little bit about your experience as a essential employee over the past six weeks of quarantine. Sir, sir. Um, personally, so we're not talking about um, the discussion of this issue, the, the right answers, the wrong answers, the gray answers, but my personal experience so far has been very much anti-PT. I haven't done any. Um, so once this pandemic really started to pick up and we realized how serious this was, I shut down. I stopped um, seeing patients in person. Um, I volunteered to my um, management to perform telehealth services. But at the time that I did that, my company was not allowing for telehealth services to be provided at home. And since I wasn't coming into the clinic physically, um, they would not allow me to perform the telehealth services because this is all very new to everybody. And we're defining what these rules are for telehealth and when we can use it and what we can bill for. Um, I felt like I had um, a patient caseload that was not um, on that side of the fence where they are essential to be seen in person. Um, I also had the additional risk factor is my wife is an internal medicine physician who is working in um, intensive care units, taking care of COVID patients directly. So that would put myself, that would put my coworkers and my patients and anyone else I come into contact with at increased risk of spreading this infection. So it came down to me to say, okay, well, I'm going to take an unpaid leave of absence, which is not the most financially easy decision to make, but I felt like was the right one for me to do at the time. And I am still on a unpaid leave of absence and I don't know when I'm going to go back. (laughs) And what side (laughs) of the fence did you argue this month on our Twitter conversation? Did did I argue on one side of the fence? (laughs) Well, you, a little bit, a little bit. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of tweets, but you did put a few out there. So here we go, fans and listeners. Um, One of the, one of the promises I want to make you is that um, On the Fence Physio is working to promote being able to identify your own biases and 
learn how to argue all sides of a conversation. And I failed miserably this time. <laughs> uh, my personal biases definitely dissuaded me from getting on and being more active in this conversation. And I had a very hard time arguing the fact that physical therapy face-to-face in this COVID pandemic is absolutely essential. Matt, how's this been affecting you over in sunny old Indiana? Yeah, so in sunny Indiana, my experience has been different in that I am still seeing patients and still seeing patients um, in the clinic um, and over telehealth. Um, Similar situation in that um, as the pandemic seriousness um, increased, the amount of patients that we have been seeing in our practice has dropped by about 70%, and that's overall, and by at least 95%, I would say, um, in-person visits. Um, I've struggled with the ethical choice and dilemma of the essential part of my job is what I'm doing for my patients, especially when they come and see me in the clinic, beneficial or am I putting them at a um, higher risk of a negative outcome from COVID versus just knee pain or back pain? So there's been a lot of uh, internal struggle, I would say, as I see patients or as I'm working and um, either rightly or wrongly trying to justify to myself what I'm doing um, for my patients and, and at my job. Okay, very good. So I'd like to get into this uh, issue that we are on the fence about and try to talk about, you know, both sides of this. So um, talking about why um, physical therapy can be essential to be done face-to-face in this pandemic. Um, One of the arguments that was uh, put forth by other sources other than myself was that um, when it comes to pain management, there are a lot of patients who use physical therapy as a means of pain management. And it was hypothesized that if physical therapy, outpatient physical therapy, was not an option for them to manage their pain, that they would go and seek pain management elsewhere, which might be in a hospital setting, an emergency room setting, in a physician's office, which could potentially put them at increased risk or infection and also bog down an already overburdened healthcare system. Now, this is um, conjecture. We do not have any amount of literature to support that this would occur. Um, You could be, you could say it's it's, uh, somewhat logical. My argument against it was that if someone is in such pain that they would go to the emergency room, I doubt they're going to give me a call and wait till an appointment opens on Tuesday in order to have that pain managed if they need something taken care of now. Um, So, other ways that physical therapy could be essential. Um, one of my, I felt like strongest arguments was uh, patients who are at an increased risk for falls. You cannot guard someone via telehealth. And instructing uh, family members to do sufficient and safe patient guarding actually takes a good amount of training. Um, I did a student rotation in a rehab hospital and teaching family, we would spend two hours or more with uh, guarding patients who were, you know, minimal assist. So patients who need a lot of um, help with performing 
um, ADLs that, you know, would be an increased risk for falls, which could potentially lead to um, a fracture and a hospitalization, which could then lead to COVID. Like, that's a patient who I could make an argument that you would want to be hands-on with. Now, do you want them to come into your outpatient clinic? Probably not, because that patient's likely, you know, who, I don't want to generalize that our fall risk patients are all old, but they're likely elderly or have some other significant medical comorbidity that would put, put them in the high, high risk group for contracting and a severe case of COVID-19. So maybe the home health situation is the better option there. You know, seeing them in person, home health, because you can sanitize your therapist before you send them into a building and sanitize your therapist on their way out. That is possible with the right amount of PPE. Right. And then that Matt, gets, do you have any ways that uh, physical therapy face to face is essential? Face to face essential in this crisis um, to shift outside of our, I'd say, area of expertise in outpatient physical therapy. Um, mm -hmm. into the acute setting um, and quite a few of the webinars and learning things that we're going through right now um, to learn more about the disease and what role physical therapy has in it. Um, I found it interesting to listen to the acute care physical therapists take on these, these things and for them they see physical therapy as essential not in the treatment of COVID-19 patients at this time, mm -hmm. but in patients who are COVID negative in the ICU um, and need mm -hmm. to be discharged from the ICU. And with their goal- Get them out. Yes. Get them home. Get them home and get them out. And I think that's one of the parts and not to get off the essential element too soon, but to go back to the what we're talking about with fall risk patients, one of the holes I feel like in that argument is if it's a patient and if it's a patient who's been sent from an acute setting or a rehab setting, I would argue that there's opportunity for physical therapy to perform um, in those two settings before they get to outpatient to where maybe outpatient could be performed in a telehealth manner. Now, is that possible? I don't know. But that's something I argue that there could be other physical therapists along the way that, hey, I shouldn't, they shouldn't be that great of a fall risk that I could still do telehealth. I don't know, but that's what I would argue. Sure. Um, the dosage in order to get significant balance changes in elderly population is probably though on the more four to six weeks um, plan and you don't want to keep them in the hospital that long. So there probably is um, some argument to putting them into um, a subacute facility that they could then um, be that, and those subacute facilities are locked down, you know, from all visitors. So that would probably be a, a good option. And I definitely agree with you. Acute physical therapists and uh, subacute physical therapists working in rehab are absolutely essential because they're taking care of the at-risk populations um, and trying to get them somewhere safe. So that is absolutely essential. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, and one of the talks that I've listened to, um, a physical therapist who's a cardiac rehab specialist in Georgia, Stephen Ramsey, um, gave a talk about physical therapy with patients on ECMO. Now ECMO, as far as I know, and this is outside of my expertise, has not been used extensively yet in COVID patients, but it was thought to be an option. Um, because of the ARD symptoms, acute respiratory distress disorder. Uh, but his question, even in the acute setting with those patients, 
um, was what um, could he do to delegate or what could he delegate in order to conserve resources and those resources being at that point valuable PPE um, could he delegate some things to the nursing staff who was always going to be already going to be in there the respiratory therapists and and for himself too he's like hey do I actually need to be in there with my hands on the patient or can I direct the care from the door can I talk through my pager to the nurses um, so there priority being to not be a vector for the disease and then secondly um, understanding and valuing the comprehensive care it takes for those patients and that may be physical therapy and what we would do um, could be accomplished by another healthcare professional um, and that was just his opinion and the way that they were um, treating at, at his hospital and also I don't know this because I've never um, mobilized a patient on ECMO, but he said it's very um, care intensive. Like you might need your respiratory therapist, your intensivist, a nurse, another person, like maybe five or six people that would be required um, to try to get this person up and walk. So while may it be beneficial, yes, but does the benefit outweigh the cost from a risk standpoint and a um, provider? Uh, burden standpoint, he would argue no. I love I love that you bring that up, and that brings into one of my favorite conversations to talk about with um, physical therapy students on internships or um, even undergraduate students that are doing shadowing hours is talking about value. Um, value is that um, ratio of potential benefit. Um, to, you know, over divided by that potential cost. So um, if you have a risk, you know, if you have a risk of infecting, like you said, several very important healthcare workers that are already a limited resource for the potential benefit of ambulating a patient on ECMO, which is a benefit, you know, for them to help them with their um, ADLs and their eventual discharge. Um, but is that, is that worth it? And that value is a, is a moving target, and it probably changes day to day. Um, but we have to we have to really be thinking about that. And the um, APTA, um, if you look at our role as a healthcare professional, what they've you know published, it is our duty, it is our professional responsibility to make that clinical you know use that make that decision on value using our clinical reasoning and using our um, like morality as well to come up with is the benefit is the potential benefit worth that risk yeah so i think that brings up a good question i'll ask you andy and try to think as unbiasedly as you can on either side right um so there's been a uh, thinking thank yes thinking. at least one point of view article and then another um, article published by pt in motion um that really uh touts the essential service aspect of both um, outpatient and home health physical therapy and one of my issues with these articles is the evidence they cite for the importance of physical therapy is something i agree with but all the numbers and all the rehospitalization admits for patients who don't get pt and these type of things are all in a situation where there is not a pandemic what are your thoughts on using research or evidence numbers right about the essential 
aspect of physical therapy in that regard when you're talking about benefit and cost in an area that it doesn't take into um, it doesn't take into account that hey there's a disease that could actually kill a person if they come they, that's not in there you know what I mean like what do you think about that sure um, so for hospital readmission rates um, we have very I don't know how much of an effect we have as physical therapists on that because we are not ultimately in charge of making the decision if a patient is admitted to the hospital or not. Um, we are also not in charge of if, if a patient tries to go to the hospital to be admitted or not. So regardless of whether you perform outpatient physical therapy services, a patient may decide that they need to go back to the hospital anyway and just go. So I don't know how relevant um, that kind of literature is in this pandemic or even really to defend the argument that PTs can affect readmission rates. Um, it's a lot of different factors. I feel like there are a lot of different factors to go into that and to try to isolate out and control for, oh, patients who receive physical therapy are less likely to um, go back to healthcare. I remember an article that talked about um, healthcare utilization in um, low back pain. This was done um, in Medicare population that tracked their healthcare dollar usage if they got physical therapy early or if they were delayed to get physical therapy. And there was absolutely no significant difference in the total number of healthcare utilization units that they used. So yeah. it's really... There, I mean, there's plenty of research out there that shows that physical therapy can make an impact on people's function, pain, um, but I don't think there's anything that's going to say that outpatient physical therapy is going to be more effective or less effective in a pandemic just because we don't have <laughs> this kind of literature. Yeah, I we think that's kind of pandemic. I think that's a good point. It's, and I think it's a good nuance in what you need to look at because like in these this point of view article, for example, that came out through the APTA, one of the stats they cite is that if a patient experiences a decline in physical function, they have a 250% increase in risk for hospital readmission or death at hospital literature. So, oh, that sounds like really big or really important. But when you look at the reference, all it's talking about is they just did a short term. They did a, a a short functional battery test on patients when they left the hospital, and it was patients with a lower score had a higher readmittance rate. Um, yeah. So it's one of those things like it's it's kind of grasping at straws, and that, that that stat looks really good. But then when you look at what it's actually measuring or not measuring, I don't think it really says much in the way of essentialness of especially outpatient physical therapy service. If anything, it's saying, hey, acute physical therapy is important to make sure they're functioning as good as it can be before they go home. They just charge. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. Um, so my question to you is, if there are patients out there now, there are patients out there now that are having problems, but those problems we've just beat into the, you know, submission that they are not essential. I don't need to see them face to face. Well, what, what, what are they going to do, Matt? So, um, 
telehealth is being uh, touted as the the option in this standpoint that we can provide our services via Zoom calls or Skype calls or over the phone and um, still provide quality uh, patient care. So we can go into that. So I got to pause you there real quick. So if we're defining telehealth, okay, are we limited to video calls and audio phone calls? Yes. As far as that's it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> That's right. There's e-visits. Uh, I, I haven't, you know, honestly, there's been so many things that have come out through CMS over the last four weeks. And I don't know how close you followed them since you aren't working. But man, it's like every day we get a different, you know, this is what's allowed. This is what's not allowed. You have to see them in person first. Then you can bill and then you can't and all this stuff. So for right now, telehealth in my clinic is only billable with a video call. So not a phone okay. call. T- phone calls are not billable okay so um i just i you know like you're right i'm I'm not billing any of these things um and uh i just i just wonder because what are we what are we providing you know in a video call versus what could you provide in an audio call also what could you provide in an electronic message also known as an email right so um what we're billing for, I feel like what we should be billing for as physical therapists is our time and our knowledge base. So if we are providing valuable education that will help a patient manage um, their physical therapy status and improve towards their eventual goals, their functional goals, I can do that in a lot of different ways that are not face-to-face. And if I'm doing that and we're saying that that's valuable, that there is value to that, then why would we not be able to bill for those services? Right, and that's what you'd have to ask uh, CMS. <laughs> um, so, for an example on that, PTAs had not been added to that billable service, even though they would be doing the same thing, until like two days ago, I think, or something like that. PTAs and OT or CODAs, you know, they could not... Um, bill for telehealth services. So hopefully through all this terrible tragedy that is COVID-19 and the pandemic, there can be some positive changes within the PT profession. So what I see is um, a good example coming from the business world is that a high-ranking CEO, very successful company, he's on Shark Tank, does does a lot of does a lot, does a lot of things with that. Brought up the ask, uh, point that with his employees, he would have never sent them all home and had them work from home and see how it went. But because of the pandemic, that's what they were forced to do, and they've seen that their productivity is just as good, if not better. And now their future business plans include reducing their um, office space footprint, that will save their company thirty percent of its expenditures annually and make them much more profitable. So Mm -hmm. this experiment experiment he would never would have done except forced to buy the virus. And I feel like for me personally, telehealth is an experiment I probably would have never done except um, prompted to and prodded to or forced to buy the virus. Because I even remember in grad school, we had like what maybe a five or 10 minute discussion, three slides on telehealth. This could be the future. 
And in my mind, I'm like, no, I can't do telehealth. I can't put my hands on people. This isn't physical therapy. You know, I was, little did I know, right? I thought I could still like palpate <laughs> the transverse process of a joint, maybe the zygopophyseal joint too, and figure out if it's upslip or downslip. You know, that was really important back then. Um, and the and, and the uh, the SI joint rotation. Yes, yes. There's a lot of and not like rotation. I need to be there. Thumbs on the PSIS. Lift your leg. You know, I have to be there to see that. And um, you know, we've learned evidence doesn't support a lot of those things. And telehealth is a viable option uh, based on what evidence shows us now from our love, treatment perspective. Yeah, I love that you. Um, use that exact verbiage right there, that it's a viable option, because what has been the study design of many papers on telehealth have been non-inferiority trials. Right. That's what, that's what we're doing. And that's what the research has done so far, is they just wanted to prove that it's just not worse than in-person care. And when you set up your study to do that, I feel like most of the time, you might find that if you're if you're setting up a study to find non-inferiority, you're probably going to find non-inferiority. So we need a little bit more robust approach to this literature. We need to create um, randomized control trials that look at telehealth versus in-person versus some kind of sham. Um, speaking of, how do you sham telehealth, right? Right. How do you blind um, telehealth? Right? <laughs> how do you blind telehealth? Um, an interesting idea that I, I was thinking of is what about automated messages, right? So they, you know, um, but an interesting article that was actually talked about, um, so this is uh, 2019 Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, is they looked at automated text messaging system for patients undergoing total joint arthros arthroplasty, forgive me, um, and they found that the patients that received these messages were told that they were receiving these messages from a bot, but actually they liked it and they had good outcomes. They had, you know, and they thought that they were being well taken care of. They had high satisfaction with that. So imagine if you didn't tell them it was a bot. Can we set up that study? Yes. Set up that study where we compare in-person telehealth and fake telehealth. <laughs> fake telehealth. I like it. And, and then I, we can, and, and then rather than trying to say like, ooh, are they just all the same? Can we actually show is one more effective than the other? And by effective, I mean what change do we get? What change do we get on functional outcome scale or on whatever you know measure you want to put out there per the cost of the visit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great points. So I'll I'll try to take the other side of the fence on this one, and it's one that I have experienced personally in this. COVID pandemic is um, that there still is quite a bit of technology disparity, I would say. If there's health disparities in the poor population, there's also technology disparity. And that's what I've come across in the rural population that I work with um, in that at least 60% of my patients do not have internet. And most of those 60% also do not have a smartphone or any other way to receive email. Like when you ask somebody like, oh, you have an email? No, I don't have an email. Um, for me as you know, a younger, I guess 30 year old um, person, college, like, like everybody has an email. Like 
right? Like, how do you not have an email? And I would say at least 60% of my patients don't uh, have an email. For, for, for the listeners at home, that was the sound of my jaw hitting the desk. <laughs> 60% of your patients don't have email? Where are you? Are you in Amish country? <laughs> well, so the, the major news this week in the clinic from at least three of my patients were the birth of different baby goats. You know, having two at a time is a pretty big deal. And I'm not joking. So um, that is something that I didn't um, anticipate being such a barrier. But when someone literally cannot do a video telehealth, right? So that's what I can bill for, right? right? Yeah. Um, I can't, I cannot provide that service. So what I have done, and this is not you know, reimbursed, but I have three patients who I think definitely need physical therapy um, for where they're at in their um, recovery. And this is, I talk to them on the phone, we get an idea of where they're at. I put together a little HEP pamphlet and I drop it in their mailbox. And then we call and talk about it, right? I can't see what they're doing, um, but we can at least have some form of reference. Is it the best? Probably not. There's not gonna be, probably be a study about dropping HEPs in mailboxes and seeing if that's a non-inferiority um, to in-person visits. But that is something um, that is- brought No, up. I gotta stop you there. That, yeah, I gotta stop yeah, you there. Yeah. It should be. It, <laughs> it should be. be a study that's done. Yeah. You know why? Because what you are providing is a valuable service, but you're not allowed to reimburse for it. Why are you not allowed to reimburse for it? Because we don't have evidence that it's valuable to prove to insurance companies, to prove to CMS that it is valuable. Right. But yes, we yeah. do need to. Yeah. So put that together, get your IRB approval. I'll help you out. <laughs> I, can, I can drive around, put some things in the mailboxes. Put some things in mailboxes, yeah. So, um, yeah so Just that's got been... a life ball, wipe it down first. <laughs> I, yep, spray it out. That's what I tell them. Spray your mailbox before you get in there. No, so that's something that, um, when you read the telehealth literature, I think from a medical standpoint, a lot of the argument will be like, hey, we can provide services to rural underserved areas. Um, and this is a benefit of telehealth because they don't have access to a specialist. Now they can call a specialist. Calling a specialist over the phone is one thing versus doing a video or internet Zoom call is another. And I think that's um, where that type of what, telehealth or video telehealth, um, there is a disparity in the rural population and in the poor population. They're not going to be able to do that. That's an infrastructure problem. Correct. But Starlink satellites got launched over Putnam County. I don't know if you saw this or not. Oh, so, let me tell you how closely I follow the Putnam County news. <laughs> Well, everyone was afraid that there was UFOs because Elon Musk launched 250 satellites that went up by the moon, and it did look pretty cool. Uh, but long-term goal to provide internet to all low atmosphere Earth. So we can lovely. So if Elon Musk does this, our my argument right now has no bearing. But for now, Putnam County, 60%, no emails. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good that's a good note to end this on. We have discussed <laughs> where is physical therapy going to go in the future um, with telehealth, maybe as a new weapon in our arsenal, or as like the often overused phrase "tool" in our tool belt. Oh, the tool belt. My tool belt's so big. Oh, it hurts to say that. <laughs> what What's that syndrome that I'm supposed to know about? When my tool belt hangs on my femoral nerve. That thing. Yeah. 
That that hurts. Morales your parasitic. <laughs> yes, that one. Yes. Come on, the OCS test wasn't that long ago. No, but I've, I have I haven't been thinking about physical therapy at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, awesome. Any so, last I, thoughts, Andy? So I think that what we should talk about is um, where we want to go from here. I think, again, we need to continue to promote this discussion on Twitter. So anybody who's out there listening, um, following our Twitter account, um, OTF Physio, um, to get involved with next month's discussion. Speaking of which, um, next week's, or not next week, sorry, next month's discussion, we are going to talk about um, when patients request certain kinds of treatment. So I think this will be a fun one is when your patient comes in, you know, on your eval day and they're asking for X treatment, how do we handle that? So I think it's a very fun conversation for experienced clinicians uh, who can tell a lot of anecdotal stories. And then it's also a good conversation for students to get involved with too, because it's sometimes you don't have a whole lot of confidence as a student on a student rotation who's dealing with a patient asking for things. You might be more likely to kind of go with the flow because you don't want to, um, you know, aggravate a patient, which could potentially lead you to fail a student rotation, which could be the end of your life probably, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's going to be really fun to talk about. And I think, too, it's one of those things that in today's current environment with the COVID pandemic, I think it's easy to get sucked into the negativity bias, right, where we think about, you know, life has to win every day, death only has to win once. So we start to think about the failures more uh, quickly than the successes. But in this situation, our question next month, I'm pretty sure, hopefully, We'll have some discussion, and I'll try to um, uh, contribute to it where there's a positivity bias, right? I did this, and it worked, and my patient loved it, right, this one uh, time. so You are a absolute ray of sunshine, Matt. Thank you very much. <laughs> Just what I needed. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, Andy, can't wait for next month. All right, signing off. Signing off.